I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. Album, Jonathan Winters Unearthed. The artist, Jonathan Winters. My guest this week, Dan Pasternak. Thank you so much for coming back, Dan. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure. So as we record this, it's way before it's happening, but this Saturday, June 12th, as you're hearing it, is Record Store Day, and we're talking about a record that comes out on Record Store Day. Dan, give them the full thing. Give them, Tell them what the whole damn three LP set is about. <laughs> the whole mm. enchilada. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan Winters, who uh, was a really dear friend of mine, passed away in... 2013 mm-hmm. uh and uh after he passed uh you know i had the honor and the privilege of producing his memorial for his family and it really um bonded me with uh, his daughter lucinda in a deeply profound way mm-hmm. and you know we've maintained this relationship and a few years went by and you know none of his material was being re-released and i said to lucinda is there anything that you think you have that might be worthy of sharing Mm -hmm. and so one day i went on an archaeological odyssey in Mm -hmm. lucinda's basement oh my god and began to quite literally unearth all of these undiscovered treasures. Oh my God. And this is the so, dream, by the way. I just need to point out this is the dream. Like, that is, <laughs> that's the thing you always, you're like, there's no way in hell. He's too big of a name. But no, it's, it's all there sitting for you, waiting for you. So, look, this will be the first of what I hope will be a number of these uh, very curated releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get into how this collection was curated. But what this collection entails is the first album is his master recording of his first album, uh, The Wonderful World of Jonathan Winters, which was his first LP for Verve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the audio quality is better than anything you've ever heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second album is his uncut performance at the Crescendo in Hollywood which was later edited and became his second album for Verve, Down to Earth. Mm-hmm. And then the third bonus LP in the collection uh, is his first uh, 45 uh, RPM novelty single that he made for Coral Records. Mm-hmm. So the A and B side of that. Five unreleased, never before been heard you know, demo acetates that he made for Verve. Mm -hmm. And then two audition episodes of a proposed 15-minute one-man radio series um, that he was thinking about doing in 1960, which was called Winter's Wonderland. Now, all of this material is from a very specific period of time from really 58, but really focused on 59 and 60 mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating uh moment not just in comedy history but also in jonathan's personal history mm-hmm. because so jonathan first got on stage uh in an amateur com- competition in 1949 at the encouragement of his new young bride eileen mm-hmm. uh who said that he should go down to this uh, amateur competition at the Colonial Theater where they lived in Dayton, Ohio, because the first prize was a wristwatch. (laughs) And she wanted him to go win the wristwatch. So he did. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only did he win the wristwatch, he also got an offer to become a DJ on WING radio there in Dayton. One thing led to another. In 1953... Jonathan moved to New York and began slugging it out, getting on local television, then national television, then playing nightclubs. And Jonathan was hot. He was cooking. He became a favorite of Steve Allen on The Tonight Show and then Jack Parr on The Tonight Show. 
He got his own summer replacement show the summer of 1955 on NBC when his good pal Johnny Carson got a summer replacement show on CBS. Mm -hmm. He was a rising, hot, young comic. But all of that threatened to go away when Jonathan um, had uh, a breakdown in San Francisco when he was playing the Hungry Eye in 1959. Uh And that incident was unfortunately a very public one at a time when not a lot of people had much understanding about mental health, mental illness. And um, he was institutionalized, not once, but twice, once in 59, and then uh, the second time for eight months um, in 61, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so his first and second albums are right in between the first and second time when he was institutionalized. He speaks about the incident quite openly on the first album, all references to his breakdown and having to go away and go to the zoo and all of the mm-hmm. stuff that he refers to um, in his comedy is very deliberately excised when his second album, Down to Earth, was released. Um, and so what this collection really is an attempt to do is contextualize these first two albums and these recordings that he made during that period when he was really grappling to hold on to his his sanity Mm -hmm. and to figure out what was going on because he was released from the first time he was diagnosed uh or for the first time he was institutionalized rather without a diagnosis um and uh he had written this poem called schizo Mm -hmm. that he just wrote in his journal and it was really about him sort of trying to come to terms with what was going on without a diagnosis. Well, I didn't know until we began going through Lucinda's basement that he'd actually recorded that as a kind of spoken word piece with musical accompaniment, almost kind of like a like an Allen Ginsberg or a yeah. Ken Nordine kind of track, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the demos that was never released that's in the collection. And it's a piece called Schizo. And it's funny but it's a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those it's this it's this moment in the first record that gets blown by on purpose, of course, because nobody wants you to sit there and stew in the idea that hey, I just went through something terrible. But it is very honest for a few moments where it's like, yeah, you know, I went th-. you can hear him building to let's be really funny about it. But it is this moment of honesty in a very early live comedy record as you pointed out before we started. This is just this is at the beginning of this as a thing. Mhm. Um yeah. And that there's this moment of of, of critical honesty that is uh, ahead of its time, I think. And then just zooms right into being Jonathan fucking Winters for a record, but damn. Yeah, and it's in the it's in the uh, it's in the first track when uh, he's doing the interview with Elwood P. Suggins, uh, <laughs> having uh, witnessed the uh, you know the spacecraft landing, which was interesting because one of the reported things that Jonathan yelled out as the cops were taking him away um you know in the middle of this incident uh you know uh fisherman's wharf in san francisco was that you know he was waiting for the spacecraft to land Mm -hmm. um so i also think that that's why the second album was very cannily um titled down to earth it was like you know yes he's been to outer space and now he's and that's why all these references to him going away, where I think, whether it was his agent or the label, um, why it seemed like there was this this effort being made to try and reframe Jonathan, because I'm sure there was concern, would he be able to continue working? Yeah. And Jonathan maintained that it this did hurt him throughout his career for the rest of his career now thankfully the story has a happy ending because he did ultimately get a diagnosis and 
shortly after getting out uh, of uh, the Institute in, uh, in Hartford after the eight month stay, he went right into production on It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Wow. Wow. That's insane. How, how much material estimate was excised from that second record? Um, I don't know if I've calculated it. There's, there's, there's little bits in every track and then there's some huge hunks, but I would say there's probably, I don't know, between eight and 10 minutes of stuff that, uh, you've never heard before. Uh, if, if you know that second album, Mm -hmm. that's a substantially new record then. I love that. That's phenomenal. And again, the sound quality is fabulous. Now here's another thing that again, hopefully people will really enjoy the collection as it was um, as it was assembled because one of the things that uh, I put into the liner notes is that Jonathan, unbeknownst to anyone, had actually had another breakdown while he was playing the crescendo in Hollywood. So while that second wow. album hmm. was being recorded that during that stretch of time, that run at the crescendo, um, apparently he had this other breakdown uh, where the doctor who had treated him in San Francisco had to come down and, and, and treat him again because uh, according to Jonathan and also Gene Norman who ran the crescendo, during that run, Jonathan wound up while he was on stage, like walking out into the middle of traffic on Sunset Boulevard and started directing traffic. My God. Oh. Yeah. Poor bastard. That is just like, when I hear this stuff, it's like, you you could, you know, that's why it made for funny headlines back then. But you look back, you're like, oh, Christ, that poor guy. I just wish he'd had the help he needed at the time, you know? Yeah, and, and ultimately, he did get the help he needed. He did yeah. get the diagnosis. He was diagnosed, you know, manic depressive, later bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, it was a, a struggle. Uh you know, one of the things that he often talked about was during that eight-month stretch in Hartford um, that they constantly, the doctors, wanted to give him uh, shock treatment. Yeah. And, you know, part of what made Jonathan so brilliant as an artist was that he had total recall. Yeah. I mean, his memory to the very end was astonishing. And so he would say to the doctors, well, what are you erasing? Ages, you know, three to six, you know, seven to 12. Like, what am I going to lose? The doctors were like, you know, Jonathan, it doesn't really work that way. You know, Mm -hmm. we just feel like it'll help with some of the pain because he did have a lot of pain. Sure. But he said, "Uh, I I, I don't want to take that chance. You know, I'd rather keep everything. And he did. He kept everything. Wow. Like there's honestly, I mean, it really, I mean, it's obviously because you're talking about electroshock therapy, which obviously has since been incredibly debunked. There is still the idea, the old, the old idea that he's one of those guys you would have described as lightning in a bottle. And he's like, you need, but he, he needed to be, you know what I'm saying? I'm just That's saying dark. It, dark. it is dark. And, and but you know what? Can I tell you something? Jonathan would have appreciated that. <laughs> but he's, it's a positive electricity in that bottle and you don't want to let go of any of it, you know? And it's all... You know, it's it's not it's not always made up of positive stuff, but good God, does he he let it out in a, a fun way that it is just like I don't know. Re- re-list, every time I get to listen to Jonathan Winters, I, I'm just like I, I can see where he's going. I can see how he's getting there. Obviously, I can see his huge influence on pop culture since, especially through Robin Williams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my God, it's just I cannot imagine what it was like to see him live. Much as the I can get an idea from the audience. Did you ever see him perform perform live? No, because I have to tell you, after, you know, his last breakdown, mm-hmm. he really had to get off the road. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, he would do some theater gigs, but by and large, he stopped doing clubs. I mean, okay. he really wasn't a club comic for that long. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he really stopped, you know, before I was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Did he... Do you, do you get the sense, again, this is going to be entirely conjecture unless he spoke about it specifically, do you get the sense that the sort of the fact that um, working on film sets and TV sets is more structured, do you think that helped him? Do you, ha- do you have any concept of that? Yes and no. 
if he was allowed to be Jonathan, mm. he loved it. Yeah. And I saw that in action. But I also think that there were times where he was tremendously frustrated. And he said to me many, many times, they don't know what to do with me. Yeah. Which I think was very true. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's easy to think, you know, like we got Jonathan Winters, let's give him something funny to do. But if it's not right for him, like it's, it is very easy to, to latch onto a name, but then sort of realize, oh fuck, right. This is this guy to not write the right thing for him. You're not going to get the energy you think you're going to get. It's got to be. Well, there was also, you know, not a lot of understanding about improvisation. I mean, he really was you know, like the godfather of, at least in the stand-up form, of of being an improvisational comic. Right. Did, so no, no one really, I think, in his day, had a lot of appreciation or understanding for how to harness that. You know, can you have imagined him on Curb Your Enthusiasm or, right. you know, working with, Christopher Guest, you know, and, and sort of those guys. Mm-hmm. I know. Do you, oh man, you, you know what? Every time I read the story about the watch, which I'm glad is being confirmed in, in your writings, it's nice to know that it's, it's, it's a true thing. I always assumed it was apocryphal. Uh, this, the, I really wish I know, I know what he had done that day to, to win the watch and the DJ. I really wish that act was recorded. I really wish I had any concept oh. of what he was doing. Can I tell you something? Mm-hmm. Stay tuned because Ooh. there will be another collection. Oh he did God. a routine at the Indianapolis Speedway. Uh-huh. And I have a whole other collection yes. of one-of-a-kind acetates that I call uh, the Ohio Collection mm-hmm. before he ever went to New York. Oh, my God. And let's just say that if people go out and purchase Jonathan Winters Unearthed, and they like it and they want more, we got more. Yeah. I love it. Oh, that's so exciting. Good. All right. I really thought that that was something that would be impossible to answer. Jesus, of course you've got the answer. Of course it comes with Dan Pasternak. Do you, okay. <laughs> let's see. Let's start here. Um, I, I literally had a conversation with somebody the other day and we were talking about you and, and they're like, who the hell doesn't Dan Pasternak know? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. But I want to know how you met Jonathan Winters. Okay. So... I'll try and tell the short version of it mm-hmm. because the long version isn't terribly interesting. Okay. I, I met him at a number of events um, where I was a fan. That was that was all, you know, like Paley Center kind of events. Mm. And every time I met him, I was hugely intimidated by him. His genius, you know, there's a lore, there's a legacy around him. And also meeting Jonathan Winters is like meeting someone that, should only be in a museum you know (laughs) he should be there should you shouldn't get to meet jonathan winters he should just be you know like a bronze figure somewhere Uh you know what i mean Uh so and i think that that's how i regarded him but then i had the opportunity to interview him for the tv academy you know i do these interviews and have done for you know the better part of 25 years for the tv academy and so i go to his home in Santa Barbara and I go to the front door and he's there and he's not ready yet. And apparently they're setting up the crew in the, like the guest cottage and I've gone to the main house. So now it's just me and Jonathan and he's standing there and his hair's a mess and he's got breakfast in his mouth. (laughs) And uh, I say, oh, well, it sure is beautiful up here. And he goes, it should be for what we pay. And I just laughed because it was funny. And he kind of looked at me and we just shared a look like, oh, okay, you're going to laugh. You're going to appreciate me. You're going to have fun. I think I'm going to like you. Mm-hmm. And somehow, some way we connected before we even started rolling in the interview where it was clear he wanted to play. And I wanted to be a playmate. And in fact, we both had to be admonished by the people who were there to film the interview. Like, okay, guys, come on, let's get serious. Let's get going with this thing. And we both kind of looked at each other like, you know, misbehaving children. And that became the basis of our relationship. And by the time the interview was over, one of the things we talked about during the interview was he had worked with and formed a very close relationship with uh, 
Bonnie Hunt when mm-hmm. they were on Davis Rules together. In fact, oh. John got the Emmy Award for his role as Bonnie's dad on Davis Rules. Mm-hmm. So at that time, Bonnie had another show, and I just happened to ask him during the interview, oh, are you going to do her new show? And he goes, oh, well, you know, I haven't been working a lot. And again, sort of they don't know what to do with me. And I haven't talked to Bonnie. And uh, well, you know, I guess I'm maybe I'm done and no one's going to call me. And I was like, hmm, well, that doesn't sit right with me. So as I was driving back to L.A. from Santa Barbara, I called my friend Norma Vela. Norma Vela was the co-creator of Davis Rules. Um, and uh, a terrific writer and producer and a dear friend of mine and a Jonathan lover. Uh-huh. And she was also working on Bonnie's new show, the Bonnie Hunt show. So I called Norma and I, you know, I told her what was going on. And I just interviewed Jonathan. And anyway, long story short, Norma said, hang on a second. She went, talked to Bonnie, jumped back on the phone with me and said, give me Jonathan's number. Bonnie wants to call him right now. <laughs> really? Well, okay, so I called Jonathan to make sure it was okay. And it's like, Bonnie Hunt wants to call you. Can I give her your number? He's like, uh, sure. <laughs> um, so anyway, Bonnie called Jonathan. He shot an episode of the Bonnie Hunt show the next week. <laughs> um, got an Emmy nomination for it. And then John called me to tell me that his wife, Eileen, said that he owed me a commission. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to take a commission. So he sent me one of his paintings Oh my God! Um, he was—he was, he was a, an amazing painter, by the way. You know, he was in art school when he started performing. That's really what he wanted to do: is he wanted to be a cartoonist and a fine artist. And he was a, a fabulous sort of surrealist painter. Mm-hmm. So he sent me one of his paintings, and we just started hanging out. And he would call me all the time. He would say, "Dan, you got to come up to Santa Barbara. There's nobody to play with up here." I was like, "Oh, okay," and literally. I would go and have a play date with Jonathan Winters. And from that point on, we were like family. Mm-hmm. And it just occurred to me that he needed people to play with. So I started bringing other comedians up to play with him. My friend John McDonnell and uh, Paul Provenza. And we were talking about Rick Overton. And then I would start putting him together with people. Um, once Jonathan and I were having lunch... And uh, I would always ask him, you know, who are you seeing that you think is funny? And he said, there's this new kid in late night. If you haven't seen him, you should really watch him. We think he's terrific. Jimmy Kimmel, have you? Well, Jimmy Kimmel is like one of my four closest friends. Mm -hmm. Like I hired Jimmy for his first TV job when he was Jimmy the sports guy on K-Rock Radio. (laughs) So I could not dial Jimmy's number fast enough. Mm-hmm. Now, I happened to know at that time that Jimmy was on vacation in Mexico, but I thought Jonathan will leave a funny message and it'll blow his mind. So I dialed Jimmy's number and he answered. He, I guess he was playing his phone. He was playing Scrabble on his phone in Mexico. <laughs> and I said, oh, Jimmy, I've got someone who wants to talk to you. And I just threw the phone at Jonathan and Jonathan always did this. He would just launch into a character. So he, you know, he said that he was a film producer and he had $400,000 and he wanted to pay Jimmy to, you know, to play a kid in a movie. Uh I mean, uh I mean, just like, he's just doing a bit. And then he starts doing an impression of Guillermo from Jimmy's show. Finally, Jonathan (laughs) tells Jimmy who he is. They have a whole conversation. Jonathan hands me back the phone. Jimmy says, Pasternak. If this is a prank, I will uh-huh. never stop getting you back for it. Uh-huh. As it turned out, <laughs> not only was Jimmy's family all huge Jonathan Winters fans, Jimmy's dad was such a huge Jonathan Winters fan. Jimmy's younger brother, Jonathan, was named for Jonathan Winters. Oh I God. didn't know that. <laughs> So John wound up going on Jimmy's show. So I just had this whole life where I got to put Jonathan together with Chelsea Peretti. We shot a video, you know, uh, with uh, uh, Chelsea Peretti when I was at Super Deluxe, mm-hmm. where they got to do a bit together. I mean, I you know, he got to do, uh, you know, the green room with Provenza. Uh, I got to put him together with Robert Klein. Klein always said that his two greatest influences were Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters. And I got to, you know, uh, play matchmaker so they could have a friendship. So Mm -hmm. I got to be this conduit between Jonathan and a lot of people in comedy where he got to have 
all these new playmates. And that was like one of the great joys of my life. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way to, you know, use your influence. That's as far as I'm concerned. I have, you know, I'll say I have very little through this podcast, but every once in a while I get to introduce somebody to a hero and it's the best feeling. Well, I always said Jonathan was a gift and he was a gift that was meant to be shared. Yeah, of course. And he obviously wanted to be. I, 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 he, I, there's never been anybody who's painted him as anything to me uh, or in public, but kind of this, like the, the nicest attention seeker, like the sweetest attention seeker, like a guy who wanted to entertain. And as you say, play, that might be the best word for it. But a guy who just really wanted to just fucking bring that energy. He, he had to get it out somehow but you need an audience. Do you want to hear the best Jonathan Winters story ever? Please, of course I do. One of our great comedy heroes, one of mine, and I know one of yours, mm-hmm. when he was eight years old, ran into Jonathan, I believe in a candy store in Beverly Hills, where Jonathan was quite literally a kid at a candy store entertaining people because you get three people around Jonathan, and that's an audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he is playing. He's doing bits. He's having a great time. And this little eight-year-old boy stood there in awe because he was a fan, <laughs> walked up to him and said, I want to take you home with me. And Jonathan <laughs> said, okay. He walks this little boy home. The little boy runs into his house. Mama, mama, look what followed me home. His mom's thinking a dog, a cat. No, it's a Jonathan Winters. <laughs> Jonathan goes into the house. This little boy's mother makes them snacks. Jonathan entertains them for hours, makes them laugh. They all have a wonderful time. He leaves. That little boy was Albert Brooks. Holy shit. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. That's remarkable. Is that not the best story ever? Jesus, that's so good. That's so. Yeah. That's the only time that that a story like that's ever ended well. By the way, um, that's, <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, that's remarkable. Yeah. Holy shit, that's but so. By good. the way, I can't mm-hmm. tell you the number of legends in comedy mm-hmm. who have these wonderful, magical Jonathan stories. Mm-hmm. I didn't know until I interviewed billy crystal for the tv academy that billy had stories like that about jonathan mm-hmm. and in fact i got a number of people to write their recollections their feelings their remembrances of jonathan uh as sort of uh i don't know bonus liner notes in addition to everything that i wrote for the collection so the collection also includes um these kinds of personal stories from Kimmel and mm-hmm. from Billy Crystal and Carol Burnett. Wow. So good. Yeah. Do you, okay. So how, how quick did it take into digging into this stuff in the basement? This is just hurting my brain that you realize you had golden on, on your hands. Like what, how, how did, how quickly did you know that there was some shit in there that was um, important? Immediately. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. I mean, Look, we had to sort through a lot of things where it's like, oh, this probably doesn't belong in the collection. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a different thing. I mean, but look, every t- I, every time I put a new reel-to-reel tape into the deck or a new cassette or I put an acetate on the turntable, I mean, it was like, you know, a- another discovery. It's just like, what pile does it belong in? You know, mm-hmm. it was really a matter of, sorting through everything and determining a sort of a frame, a shape for this collection, because I wanted it to not only be a way to introduce or reintroduce Jonathan, but to also, like I say, tell a story. Mm -hmm. So this collection tells a very specific story in my mind. Do you have any, uh, this is an annoying technical question and uh, how the hell did he have his own master? Was this common? Why, how did he have his own master? I, I don't know. It's I, I don't really know. I, I mean, I don't know if he just requested it from the yeah. the label. Yeah. You know, he had a very good relationship with Verve. Mm-hmm. That's a whole interesting story, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that Verve is really one of the first prestige comedy labels that was doing live comedy albums. Mm-hmm. But it was primarily a jazz label. Right. N- Norman Granz, um, 
uh, had really pioneered recording live jazz with uh, his Jazz at the Philharmonic albums. And he was, I think at the time, managing Ella Fitzgerald when he started Verve Records. But what was obvious was that he understood that the benefit, the necessity of recording jazz live in front of an audience was because of the improvisational nature of the art form, you were capturing something that had never happened before and would never happen again and could only happen with those players that were performing in front of people. Mm -hmm. And those were the comedians he sought out. So the very first comedian he signed was Mort Saul, mm -hmm. who worked, you know, obviously very topically, but also very extemporaneously. I mean, famously would go on stage with a newspaper mm -hmm. and he would riff on what was in the paper. And Mort, who still with us, God bless him to this day, has shared with me that, uh, you know, he really always thought of himself as a jazz comic and was responsible for turning Norman on to the next two comedians he would sign. Mm -hmm. Shelley Berman sure. and Jonathan Winters. Shelley, who came out of Second City, as an improviser and in fact had been part of a trio with Mike Nichols and Elaine May before he went off on his own. Right. Uh, and then Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, you know, was very good friends with Mort. Mort respected, still respects Jonathan more than just about any other comedian. Everybody, every comedian always talks about that Jonathan sort of lives on a shelf by himself. Mm -hmm. So many comedians have said, like, Jonathan is the best. Um, I, I was watching uh, some bonus material uh, in the Richard Pryor Show DVD set. You know, remember when Richard did his uh, his uh, short-lived NBC yeah. variety series? Mm -hmm. And he was doing, like, a Q&A with the audience, you know, like the way Carol Burnett would do. And a man in the audience said, I think you are the funniest comedian in the world, Mr. Pryor. Who do you think is the funniest? And without hesitating, he says, Jonathan Winters. Fair enough. Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. so, so Jonathan just had this kind of esteem. And so, yeah, so uh, the first three comedians in this very new art form of the live comedy album on Verve were Mort, Shelley, and Jonathan. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. You know what? Uh, would it be weird and dark to ask you the last funny thing or last joke Jonathan Winters ever told you, if you remember it? The last one? I yeah. mean, here's the thing. Every conversation I ever had with Jonathan mm -hmm. was both profound and funny. Mm -hmm. And he was also really dark. Mm -hmm. Like, People don't. So Jonathan was part of a movement of comedians that uh, were branded sick. You know, there yeah. was this article, um, famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, in Time magazine in 1959, 1959 called The Sicknicks. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that included Lenny. That included Mort. That included Shelley Berman. That included, you know, Tom Lehrer. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, that article came out when this moniker of being a sick comedian was kind of used, it was kind of weaponized against Jonathan because mm -hmm. it was right after the, the incident in San Francisco. So, of course, it made reference to the fact that he was literally sick and had just been in the, quote, funny farm. Yeah. But Jonathan always talked about his attraction to the macabre. So when you say the last funny thing... I'll tell you one of the things he talked about a lot when he sort of knew, you know, his he was in failing health in the last couple of years of his life. And uh, right after my mom died, my mom died exactly a year before Jonathan, minus hmm. five days. Okay. And John, when my mom died in, uh, that was April 16th, 2012, he said, you know, what can I do to help? And I said, well, you can take care of yourself because I can't handle losing you and my mom in the same year. And he laughed and he said, well, I'll see what I can do. 
And then he made it to April 11th of the following year. So five days shy of the one year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always talked about, uh, well, I don't think I'm ready to take the, you know, the big dirt nap yet. That's what he talked. That's how he would refer to death is the big dirt nap. Um, so everything was always, you know, super, super dark, yeah. but so funny. Yeah. I <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, it's one of those things where there is, again, everybody paints him with joy. The The darkness is always there, but it's never, it's never, I don't know. He never seems to be defined by it. It's not one of these, he doesn't ever well, come because, across. Because the darkness is joyful. It's yeah. mischievous. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Is it's not darkness in a foreboding way. Mm-hmm. In In a way, when he talks about taking the big dirt nap, what he's doing is he's taking the onus, he's taking the horror off of this idea of death by sort of making fun of it in that way. Yeah. But you just have to operate on his wavelength. You have to meet him there. You have to understand that that's where he is. And if you can meet him where he is, he will have fun and you will have fun. Yeah. I think it's something a lot of comedians in general not just stand-ups but a lot of comedians in general miss this is not some tears of a clown bullshit this is not this like i have to be miserable to be funny it's like no he was dealing with shit and and he was funny to to get through it you don't have to be miserable or make yourself miserable or god forbid make other people miserable to be funny that is not some prerequisite i'm sure if he i'm sure he wouldn't have paid he could have if he could have paid to not be miserable he would have but he also knew how to deal with it in the funniest possible way yes Yes, and I will tell you, the truest comedians, and I mean this in the deepest, most existential, most spiritual way, the truest comedians don't do it because they want to do it or because they're good at it and, well, this is a thing I'm good at, so I should do it. They do it because they have to. Jonathan had to be funny. He did it. If there was three people there or 3,000 people there, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the hardest laughs I've ever had were sitting alone with Jonathan in this little room where we, in his house, where we would sit and smoke cigars and tell each other all of our secrets. And he <laughs> would just roll. And we would get on the phone. I will tell you, most conversations with Jonathan didn't start with, hi, Dan, hi, John. He would call me in a character or I would call him in a character and we would just go until one of us broke. And by one of us, I meant me mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I always broke. Uh, every once in a while, I could get him to laugh. And oh, my God, getting Jonathan Winters to laugh is it's, you know, it's like a finger from God touches your head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just is. A, it's an amazing feeling. Is getting a Jonathan laugh. Oh my God, I can only imagine. And it's not like he he didn't enjoy laughing. It's just that uh, he was so in the moment of anything that he was just like cooking. Like, what's next? What's next? What's next? You mm-hmm. know, he was, God, he was fun. He was just, he was a good time. Yeah. Do you do you get any kind of a sense of again? I'm glad that you know about what the, the the early act was, but he's not trained as a comic. Did do you think the radio helped him tweak it into in, into an act? Or I mean, I don't know. Like, do you do you have a, a concept of his evolution as a comic? Absolutely. So Jonathan actually started doing a lot of impressions. He mm-hmm. could have been the greatest impressionist of all time. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, he would do one. I've seen like on old appearances on the Par show where he would do uh, Bing Crosby. Uh-huh. Or there's a famous one where this is when Kennedy was still alive. And he did a dead on Kennedy. I mean, like, forget Vaughn Meter. Yeah. Jonathan Winters did the best Kennedy. Amazing. And in fact, Jack Parr tells the story of when Jonathan called him as Kennedy. And Jack Parr thought for like 20 minutes that he was talking to the president. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so he started doing a lot of impressions. Mm-hmm. And then he figured out that doing original characters 
was a way to do something that was much more interesting to him, something that had a lot more depth and a lot more originality. Mm-hmm. So that's when he started doing, you know, Maudie and uh, like Elwood P. Suggins started as another character and then became a different character. And he sort of evolved that while he was on the radio. So there definitely was an evolution for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the biggest difference was, you know, apart from figuring out like how much improvisation to do within a set bit, because he did have mm-hmm. some set bits and would always improvise, never did them the same way twice. But I think it was finding those characters that uh, he would like his little boy character became, you know, Chester Honeyhugger, um, this sort of grandma character that uh, there's a bit uh, that he recorded as one of these demos for uh, Verve that's in the collection. That's about a family picnic. Um, and this grandma character ultimately becomes Maudie. So mm-hmm. you can sort of see those things evolve. And they definitely did take shape during his, his early uh radio and uh and tv years yeah there's a sense of ownership you get if you create your own characters uh you know it's it's maybe fun to do impressions especially if you're good at them and boy oh boy do people light the fuck up if it's a perfect impression but yeah the sense of ownership i think of coming up with your own character and getting to play with it that way is is freeing well he also did something in a way and he and i actually talked about this that prior did in his own way, which was he gave real dimensionality to characters that were really unseen in media. You know, when Pryor would do Mudbone, it was like Jonathan doing um, Elwood. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Jonathan and Pryor admired about each other, is that they were giving three dimensions, 360 degrees of these characters that the audience didn't really know. You know, I mean, they were, uh, you know, Jonathan was very much the boy from Ohio. I think there are two things that really define Jonathan um, uh, in terms of his his origin story. Uh, You know, uh, it was, you know, being a Buckeye, being from Ohio and being a Marine. And those two things were very much at his core. And he drew on that uh, sense of identity a lot. I can see that. I mean, those are, those are, I mean, one is, one is life originating. One is massively life changing, no matter how you, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Do you on this, this three album thing that you thank goodness put together, is there a favorite bit among the new stuff? Wow. Um, There's a bunch of things that I really, really like. That picnic routine that's, by the way, on there in two different versions. There's the the demo version that he did for Verve, which interestingly um, sounds like he recorded in a studio and that they laid like the sound effects of a crowd laughing underneath it mm-hmm. to make it sound like it's a live recording. It clearly isn't, mm-hmm. but I love the bit. And then he does it again and you can hear him sort of do a different version of it in one of those winter's wonderland uh, uh, audition episodes of the radio series. So I love that picnic bit cause it's a, it's a whole sketch it's a whole movie where he plays all the characters so that's just john at his best Mm -hmm. um but i also loved schizo because it was you know him really trying to figure something out and also kind of make make the lemonade out of the lemons you know Mm -hmm. um but yeah there's there's also there's little grace notes and glissandos through that performance at the uh at the crescendo when um god it's just stuff that got cut out of the album but it's so fun to hear him just talking about 
his day going to the club and going to the barber shop in Beverly Hills where all the famous people get their hair cut. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, God, hard to put my finger on one thing. And sure. I really love this collection as a collection. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really, it's come to be all of a piece now to me. Well, there's also never been before exactly what you're talking about, which is getting to listen to him do two bits in the one bit in two different ways. That is, that's the thing you don't get from a record that was recorded over the course of a night or a few nights, but we choose this, this bit. Like you don't really get to hear him interpret his own shit twice. That's amazing. Well, also there aren't a lot of artists like Jonathan who are truly jazz comedians who, right. who you know, do the bit differently every time. Um, you know, Klein was very improvisational and I think would change things up and Pryor certainly was, but mm -hmm. someone like Carlin, you know, who we've talked about, who, you know, I, you know, uh, I revere, you know, Carlin was a precision artist, Yeah. you know, so to hear, you know, if there's a different version of a classic Carlin bit, it's usually because he was working it out on the way to the final version. For sure. And when we got to that final version, man, he locked in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Or I've got three more words to add. And, you know, he'll add his three words and he'll, he'll go go to town on, on a, ten words you can't say on television. Uh, my God. I the, the, First of all, this is a, a great set. Um, tell people, first of all, where they are going to be able to find it, which I mean, the answer is simple, but tell everybody. Well, so you got to sort of find out where your uh, record store day participating record store near you is. Uh, I don't have the full list of the sure. uh, of the stores that are going to be carrying it, but they're mostly great independent record stores across this great land of ours. Um, this is a first pressing, so it's a limited pressing, but if it sells well, uh, the good people at Comedy Dynamics have assured Lucinda Winters and myself that um, they will make more. Um, but at least for right now, June 12th, Record Store Day, get out to your local indie record stores that are participating in Record Store Day. And it is, by the way, my understanding is it is the only comedy release coming out on record store day really yeah oh my goodness get record store day people get 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 your shit together people not the record store day people i'm just saying it never it never it doesn't it's always i'm always finding myself searching way too hard to find the comedy release but i'm hey at least there's only the one this time around so you guys know what to look for if you're vinyl comedy nerds grab this damn thing um thank you dan first of all for doing the show uh, thank um, you um uh we've already made the argument of why to give this thing a listen we know we know this is a, this is a nice it's not just it's it, like you say it is this this moment this important moment it is contextualized perfectly with the liner notes as well so make sure you guys like this is a thing you're going to get to pour over i'm excited to physically see it and hold it well that's the thing by the way is mm -hmm. that you know it's an, it's only being released on vinyl amazing you know? okay there's no digital version of this as of right now. I don't think there will be because you and I both know, I mean, look, this is comedy on vinyl. Uh -huh. There is a very special relationship you have with the comedy album on vinyl when you open it up and you hold it in your hand and you put it on that turntable and you drop the needle and you look at all the packaging. I mean, the, the, the packaging is, it's not just the liner notes that I've written or the stuff that Billy and Jimmy and Pat Oswalt and Carol Burnett have added. It's also all of the clippings and all of the photos that adorn the packaging are all from Jonathan's personal collection. So there's lots of pictures. There's clippings from his own scrapbooks. Yes. I mean, so everything that you're seeing is, is Jonathan's. You know, and most of the liner notes, honestly, are his own words. I mean, I really, I edited his writing as much as, you know, adding sort of my own editorialization. So what you're getting is a very pure presentation of Jonathan telling you his story and presenting his work to you. Yeah, people should pick it up. It's very good. Uh, I love it. I don't know. It's 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 a nice. It's very nice to see this kind of stuff get dug up and put out there. Frankly, I just 
I don't know. It doesn't happen that often in comedy stuff. Re-releases are always for the music acts. The comedy stuff, you're never really getting new stuff out there. So I, I, I like when this kind of thing happens. Um, again, Dan, thank you for doing the show. My pleasure, Mr. Clown. Always good to speak with you. And uh, listen, I don't know. Have you told your listeners that uh, you're winding this thing down? Yeah, by the time this comes out, I've probably made more of a big deal about it. Yeah. So. Well, let me just say, as not just someone that you've had on now a couple of times, but as a as a fan, thank you for doing this because I have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed all of the stuff that you've done with Phil Proctor and the Fire Signs. Oh, I love your uh, searching for Dick Davy. I thought that was a really phenomenal piece of work. Thank you. And for those of us that love this stuff. Um, You've done something really, really special. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that, mean, that means a lot. I will at the very least say the Firesign episodes won't stop because that would be a real shit-ass thing to do. So I'm going to do those until we're done with, with those releases on vinyl. At the very least, we'll cover those. And cool. maybe Python with Andre Jackerman because he said he would do the rest of them with me. So maybe those two things. But, you know, the weekly show is going bye-bye. But anyway, yes, it's very nice of you. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, well, Dan, thank you again. <laughs> I think I thank you three times because I'm an idiot and a terrible host. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good have thing. Have a good thing. <laughs> thank you, Dan. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!